You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran, and this week, while the country is reeling from yet another school shooting, gun reform advocates are once again calling on Congress to take meaningful action to stop the epidemic of gun violence. A majority of Americans favour some type of gun safety regulations. However, a minority of Congress continues to block meaningful legislation. Our guest today is Tom Mouser, whose son Daniel was murdered in the Columbine High School shooting in 1999. He's been working for gun control for more than 20 years. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Tom Mouser, I so appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for being our guest on Just Solutions. You're a member of a club nobody wants to be part of, and that is the parent of a child who was killed in a school massacre. In many ways, you're one of the founding members of that awful club. When these things happen, I would imagine this is incredibly re-traumatizing for you. And because they're happening at such increased frequency, this must be a nightmare that never ends. So first of all, how are you in the aftermath of Uvalde, but also the, the previous massacres we've seen? You know, I'm doing okay. You know, to some some extent you get a little bit used to it, but then again, you don't because it is, you know, it is re-traumatizing. In, in fact, uh, the, the day that it happened, I just returned uh, from Oregon visiting my daughter and my grandchildren. You know, so you have that, that great feeling of, uh, you know, coming off of a trip like that, we landed in Denver. And the first thing I did was I looked at my smartphone, started it up. And the first message I have was an interview request from ABC regarding a school shooting. And I thought, oh, my God, what school shooting? This is what I come home to. First thing I find out is there's been another terrible school shooting. Well, in many ways, Columbine redefined how certainly authorities deal with shooting, but also I think public consciousness around this. And there are very many parallels with what's happened in Uvalde. Certainly the police uh, response um, and the delay there, and I know that that is going to be investigated, but also a very chilling parallel insofar as the NRA National Convention was uh, scheduled the same week as this shooting. That was the exact same experience that you had after the Columbine shooting. 23 years ago, the NRA convention was scheduled to be in Denver. That's a chilling parallel. You know, what was your experience back then? Because I know there were calls to, from officials, the, the mayor of Denver wanted the convention to stop. It was scaled back, but there seemed to be slightly even more aggressive rhetoric in the face of the most recent shooting that we won't stand down. That was certainly the messaging from the NRA. Take us back to what happened 23 years ago here in Denver. Well, the NRA, it was just amazing that they they happened to have their national um, convention scheduled 10 days after Columbine. And they, they trimmed it back significantly to basically being just a meeting. The main thing was they, they canceled the, uh, the trade show, uh, the exhibit hall. And I actually wasn't one of those who just said, no, they shouldn't be doing this at all. One of the things I said when I spoke that day on the west steps of the Capitol was, well, why don't they just go ahead with it? You know, why don't they just show the, re- the, the world what they have on display? Let their members speak because 
even the NRA, you know, in some tape recordings that now were revealed, uh, the NRA leadership were real concerned back at that time about indeed what their members would be saying to the media and how it could how it could be uh, very hurtful to them. And you fast forward to today and they went ahead with the one in Houston. They went ahead with the um, with the trade show. And I tell you what they have in that trade show today is much more dangerous than what even what they had in 1999. Uh, the kinds of tactical gear and the types of weapons they have uh, far worse. Um, one one former executive, uh, a gun executive who's now turned to our side, said that they have things on display now that just 10, 15 years ago, they would never have allowed. Well, let's talk about that. What has happened in the 23 years since Columbine, particularly with the gun industry and the gun lobby and, and particularly the NRA and the uh, the political element of uh, this whole conversation, the influence that the NRA and the gun lobby has. The rhetoric has become so much more extreme even since Columbine as well, this doubling down on uh, gun rights and particularly the rights to own these weapons of war. What's your sense of how extreme the rhetoric has become since Columbine and what you experienced in the immediate aftermath of the shooting? Well, what's really happened is that there are uh, pro-gun groups that are much farther to the right than the NRA, groups like the Gun Owners of America. And there's a number of other groups like that. And they have increased their rhetoric. And I think the NRA was afraid that maybe they would lose some of their membership to those other organizations. So they politically went that way. They felt that they had to go farther to the right so they didn't lose membership. I think in the process, what's happened is those that, that rhetoric has become stronger and the most frenetic, the most radical of their of their membership are the ones who were speaking. I think they have a number of members who were uneasy with the direction of the NRA, but they really don't have anything to say about it. If you look at who's on their board of directors, um, it's they're they're very far right people, so the membership really doesn't have a lot to say about that. Well, let's talk about. The people, I suppose, that the NRA doesn't represent. And these are the millions of gun owners in the country that don't necessarily adhere to that very extreme right wing rhetoric that, in fact, are in support of some type of reasonable uh, gun legislation. You have said that we need to change messaging and appeal to those people. So take us through who they are and how do we reach out to them? Because, as we said, the, the conversation seems to be dominated right now by these very extreme margins on the right that's not representative of all gun owners in the country that's absolutely right the the nra has a membership of they say somewhere between four and five million uh that's less than one percent of the population that's also a small percentage of total gun owners so they really don't represent the, the, the majority by any means of gun owners a lot a lot of gun owners simply don't want to belong to the NRA and don't like what's happened. When we when we closed the gun show loophole in Colorado by a vote of the people, we got 70% of the vote. We were clearly getting a lot of gun owners that, that supported closing that gun show loophole. I think the way, thing you have to do to reach that, that population, that you know, when you have 90, over 90% of Americans wanting 
stronger background checks, universal background checks for all sales. Over 90%, you're obviously getting an awful lot of a, a, a lot of gun owners. So to reach out to them, I think you have to really attack the, the, the cliches and the excuses of the NRA. That is, they 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 really they really speak in bumper sticker language and memes. That's their way of doing things. So the things like, uh, you know, if you take away the the guns of uh, uh, responsible gun owners, only the criminals will have them. You know, things like that. We we hear this rhetoric and these cliches all the time, and it's important to respond to those with with responsible and logical answers. So. For example, when they say things like, this is all about confiscation, I, my response is, how in the world would you confiscate three, 400 million firearms? How would you even do that if you wanted to do that? You can't. This is not about confiscation. This is about reasonable laws. So that's the message I think we have to give to those, all those people in the middle, those people that we have to influence you know, to make a change. Also, I think another important message is the gun lobby and the NRA consistently says the way we're going to get out of this is with more guns and more open carry guns, more concealed carry guns, teachers with guns. And I think the response is we've already done that. You know, we've been doing that now for a few decades. Hasn't worked out very well, has it? And that's what we have to challenge people with. You have to attack the rhetoric and the cliches of the gun lobby. I mean, you mentioned those cliches and it's almost like clockwork. As soon as we see a mass shooting, we have those politicians like Ted Cruz, those NRA supporters and, and folks really in the pocket of the gun industry saying this isn't about guns. It's about mental health. And the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. As you have said, those don't hold any water. And if you look at the data, so how do we take control of the narrative? How do people who maybe are watching right now, who know somebody who is what we're calling a reasonable gun owner, how do we counteract some of that messaging? That The, the messaging right now has been dominated by that extreme right-wing fringe. How do we change that? What What's some of the language that people, maybe who are watching and listening now, could use as they're having conversations? Well, first of all, I, th I think it's important to say that first you have to find a way to reach those those folks. And, and that's really, that's not always easy by any means. Uh, I mean, usually when I speak, um, a lot of my presentations are, for example, to church groups. So, well, you know, and those tend to be progressive churches. Um, you know, we, we don't get invited to speak uh, at right wing type or even middle of the road churches. People stay away from that issue, especially in churches. So, so it's, it's not always easy. Um, but I, I think the way, the, the way that you do it is... Um, you really have to think of what 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 are the hot buttons, what are the hot buttons for them, and so clearly one of them is taking away their gun rights. So one of the things that I respond to is when 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 the my opponents say they're trying to take away our rights or they're going to confiscate all of our guns, I will say, well, what laws have been introduced that that uh, confiscate weapons? What which ones are they? What guns have been introduced that would that take away your rights? What what right are we talking about? And what you'll find is a lot of times they don't know what to how to respond. 
And that's exactly what happens to people on my side of the issue very often. That is that they will, people in the middle will hear these uh, statements and these cliches from, uh, from the gun lobby and they'll throw out some statistics. They can be very, very wrong, very, very uh, misstated. And they're not sure what to say. We have to provide them with information. So for example, I have a, a four page paper uh, that I pass out at uh, all, all meetings that I have, and we have it on the, the Colorado Ceasefire website that provides uh, the whole list of those kinds of cliches that, that, that are used by the, the gun lobby and provide good responses to them. So I, another really good example is what, what we will hear is only criminals will, uh, criminals don't follow the laws. Only the, only the responsible gun owners will follow laws. Criminals don't follow laws. Criminals won't undergo a background check. Well, that's simply not true. And we've got the data here in Colorado. Um, last year, I believe it was, we had over 14,000 gun sales stopped because that person was prohibited from making a gun purchase. 14,000. So I say, to, I say to the audience, aren't you glad that we stopped that? And guess what? Criminals do go background checks. Yeah, some of them are stupid. Some of them don't know they're prohibited. And we need to stop those, those kinds of gun sales. We mentioned Colorado Ceasefire, and that is the organization that you formed in the aftermath of Columbine, really in the face of inaction by the state legislature. But there have been huge successes. And you mentioned there the gun show loophole um, and expanding background checks. There have been other pieces of legislation that have passed in the state of Colorado. And I think we often focus on what's not getting done, but it is good to remind people that there are laws being passed, albeit a lot of this progress is happening at a state level. What is the gun show loophole? Because that was a critical piece of legislation that you spearheaded. And ultimately, it went to a vote of the people and it was overwhelmingly passed in the state of Colorado. What was it? The gun show loophole is simply this. Anybody who is selling a firearm who has a federal license to sell a firearm has to conduct a background check of anybody who wants to purchase a gun. If you don't have a federal license because you're not required to, you're a private, considered a private seller. But if you go to a gun show, there will be both gun dealers with a license and private sellers of firearms. The private seller doesn't have to conduct a background check. So in the case of Columbine, the, the two Columbine shooters went to a gun show, took a, had a friend go with them who was 18 years old to purchase the guns for them. They purposely went to the table of a private seller so that they didn't have to go through a background check, didn't have to sign any paperwork. They, they could be off the radar. And, and that's what the gun show loophole is, that a criminal or a, a, a um, uh, a person who's committed domestic violence can go into a gun show, be rejected at one table when they go through a background check, another table, they don't even have to go through a background check. So clearly the people of Colorado understood that. They closed that loophole by a vote of 70% to 30%. And it makes, it makes all the sense in the world. We then, uh, in 2012, went a step further and, and required not just at the, back, at the uh, gun shows, but also all private sales, because you know the gun that, that you purchase from a, a private seller can kill just the same as a gun that comes from a, from a licensed dealer. 
we need to make sure that anybody who attempts to purchase a firearm in this state goes through and has to pass a background check in order to make a purchase. And I think it is very much worth celebrating success when it comes to legislation being passed in different states. But then the reality is it's very easy to go into a neighboring state and bring guns purchased. And so this brings us back to the need for some type of federal legislation. That's right. Every every state around us, except uh, New Mexico, has much, much weaker gun laws than, than ours. So, yeah, unfortunately, guns and dangerous people can cross a state border just as easily as the automobile can. So that's that's why we need to have laws coming out of Washington, D.C. When it comes to something like a red flag law, okay, that makes more sense to, to do at the state level. But when it comes to assault weapons and background checks and a whole variety of laws, those need to happen at the federal level. It just It just isn't enough to do it at the state level. And a red flag law, which has been passed here in Colorado, as in other states, that's when somebody has been flagged for a concern, either mental health or domestic abuse, that they are then prohibited from either accessing firearms or there are some nuance to that. Explain exactly what the red flag laws are. Sure. Um, The official name is Extreme Risk Protection Order. So it's a protection order in the way that we have domestic protection orders. And what, what it says is that it, a, a, a family member or law enforcement can petition a judge and present evidence saying that this particular person, their family member or this person in the public, has shown that they are a danger to themselves or others. And that could be you know, to do with shooting. It could be even suicide. In many cases, it's, uh, it's a danger of suicide. And if the judge agrees, the judge can then place a, a um, extremist protection order on that person. Law enforcement will remove the firearms that that person has and prohibit any purchase. Now, they can appeal that, uh, that order, go before the judge and state their case. Uh, if the judge keeps it in place, it will be in place for a year uh, and then it has to be renewed. But that person, anytime during that year, can go go to the judge and say, "Well, I've received treatment, or here's why I'm no longer a danger." You know, they they can do that kind of thing. Now, the gun lobby was, of course, opposed to it, uh, even though it works in a red state like Indiana. They've had it for a number of years in Indiana. The gun lobby said, "Oh, this will be misused. This will be the ex-girlfriend trying to get back at her ex-boyfriend." Well, first of all, ex-girlfriend can't can't do that. She'd have to go to law enforcement to do it. And law enforcement can decide if they're going to go before the judge. But they said that it would be abused. And it simply hasn't been. They said there'd be hundreds and hundreds of cases. There haven't been. It's been a really, really reasonable number. It's really an important tool that we have to use. And I think it's really important to note that the gun lobby so often says, you know, yeah, they blame it on mental health. And they say, well, it's it's these people who uh, are, are dangerous, and that's what we have to do something about. Don't don't do something. Don't pass laws that are that that uh, are detriment to the responsible gun owners. Well, that's what the red flag law does. You know, it targets the people who who could potentially be dangerous, instead of waiting for something to happen. So, it, it's a really important uh, law that really needs to be passed in in every state.
You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Today, we're speaking with Tom Mouser, who has been working for gun control for 23 years. His son, Daniel, was murdered in the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. He founded the organisation Colorado Ceasefire. Find out more at coloradoceasefire.org. And find out more about us and watch past episodes at freespeech.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the Just Solutions podcast. Tom, one of the other things that you have been trying to highlight as well is the need to actually target the gun industry, the gun lobby itself. We've talked about the NRA, but this is an absolutely massive industry in terms of gun manufacturers and gun dealers. Right now, there is an effort uh, to repeal a 2005 law that essentially grants immunity to the gun industry around uh, massacres. And I know there are, uh, as I said, there's an effort right now to repeal that law. What are you talking about? What do you want to see happening when it comes to either how we're talking about these issues and including the gun industry in this or or what we might do legislatively to redu- to take away the immunity that the gun industry right now has? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it is just atrocious that we have provided that kind of of, of immunity to the gun industry. There is simply no other industry other than, for example, companies that make vaccines. You know, there's there's some protection that we provide to them. But of course, there's a lot of science behind uh, the production of things like vaccines. But there's just simply no other industry. Uh, imagine that we provided immunity to the automobile industry. Um, and we saw a number of accidents with the particular car model and said no no you can't sue them even though there is this pattern or you know some other industries that 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 have a a potentially dangerous product we really have to change that we really can't be providing that kind of immunity i think that the angle that we especially need need to take when it comes to the gun industry and, and this this marriage that they have with the nra um, and, and their NRA really carries out the dirty work for the gun industry. I think we really need to treat the gun industry the way that we treated the tobacco industry and the way that and view them just like they were the uh, tobacco industry. Look at the lies they told. Look at the lives they took. They lied for so many years. They had a, such a dangerous product and would nev- not do anything about it. But, you know, even when we had that, other than obviously members of Congress who were from the tobacco states, we didn't have a political party that was so married to the tobacco industry. And so eventually, once the truth came out, um, we really got at the tobacco industry. And in the case of the gun industry, they're married to the Republican Party, clearly. And that makes it more difficult to uh, to get at them because you want to have one party that that uh, gets people all full of fear and hyper excited about protecting their their guns and not allowing confiscation. I think we need to talk about the gun industry as being like the tobacco industry. And we need to say to the Republican Party, you need to, to divorce yourself from the gun industry.
And I mean, threat. one way the gun industry has been so influential is to block public discourse around gun violence being a public health issue and crisis and blocking research by the CDC in keeping track of gun violence because of course there's a huge amount of attention on massacres especially when they're in schools but the reality is hundreds of people every day are dying from gun violence and many are dying by suicide as well and yet that is often absent from the the discourse as well as you were saying if we change how we talk about this and engage reasonable gun owners in this conversation, we might actually make some progress. I mean, talk about that, that we also need to shift attention away from, you know, the horror of the massacres to the everyday reality of what gun violence is. Yeah, unfortunately, the public tends to react just to, you know, mostly to the to the mass shootings and especially the school shootings. The reality is that they're, they're a relatively small percentage of, of total gun deaths. Um, domestic shootings, most of our mass shootings are domestic shootings. They're within a family. And, and that, that's, that to me is just, just as tragic to have that things are so bad that we're, you know, that we're shooting members of our own family. Um, and, then, and then suicides. You know, a lot of times the gun lobby will even say you shouldn't be including uh, gun suicides in this discussion. You know, those are suicides and, and, and that's different. They, they made that choice. No. It is gun violence. Anybody who has been on the scene where there's been uh, someone who who committed suicide with a gun knows that it's a very violent scene. It's a very bloody scene. It's it's very difficult for the family to go on if if for example that that suicide took place in in their own home. It, that that is violence also. And you know who the the one group is that that is most likely to commit uh, that gun suicide. It's older white men. Um, we need to be talking about that. So when they say, oh, this isn't, you know, th this shouldn't be included. Well, guess what, Republican Party? Uh, these, these are especially your members who, who, were, who were taking their lives. And, and many of them are military men. And, you know, we're afraid to say that in America, that maybe, maybe they shouldn't have a firearm at home. Oh, you can't possibly say that or even suggest that. They serve their country. They know how to use a weapon. Yeah, unfortunately, in some cases, they do know how to use a weapon. And that means, and that includes taking their own life uh, when they're in the despair that some of them find themselves in. We just have a couple of minutes left, Tom, and I do want to mention this big event happening June 11th. It's March for Our Lives. There was a March for Our Lives event after the Parkland shooting. This is the second one, and I know that you have been closely involved in many of these. And, and these are led by the victims and the family members of people lost to gun violence. And you have devoted the last 23 years of your life to advocating for gun reform. It shouldn't be left to the victims, though. I mean, how do we engage everybody in society on this issue? Because you're dealing with enough. It should not be left to the victims, I feel. How do we engage everybody on this? Yeah, that, that, that's a really important point. Um, there, there is a lot of burden placed on, on, on the survivors and uh, of, of the victims. And it can be very difficult. You know, one of the things that's kept me going is the fact that I feel like I'm speaking for others who feel that they just don't, they just can't speak. They're not able. It's just too difficult. But you can't just count on us. You, other people have to get involved. That's why I especially think it's important for young people uh, to, to get engaged in this issue. 
and for people who aren't younger to encourage that and to be there with them and show them support. Because I think it's important for young people to say very in a very strong way, we don't want to live this way. This is not the way to live. We're not going to take it anymore. Well, Tom Mouser, I so appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for being our guest on Just Solutions. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Tom Mouser founded Colorado Ceasefire to advocate for gun control after his son Daniel was murdered in the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Find out more about their work at coloradoceasefire.org. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Find out more and watch past episodes of the show at freespeech.org. Engage with us on social media. Drop us a comment and join the conversation. Hashtag Just Solutions at Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.